Well, good morning. It's good to be back in the Word of God today. It's going to be kind of a two-step process today. We're going to spend some time in the Word and our introduction of our new study, Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. That's a study through First and Second Timothy and Titus. We started just a little bit to get our feet wet last time. We're going to do a little bit more today. So you can turn in your copy of God's Word to First Timothy chapter 1. And if you've not been with us before, this is uh, a new study. We finished up our studies in First and Second Corinthians several weeks ago and had some joy of having others in the pulpit and sharing and uh, even my son doing that. And I was just very grateful for all that. Keep him in your prayers as he's starting an internship far from us as uh, he desires really to follow the Lord in ministry. This is our second installment of our new study, Instructions for the Church. Uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles now, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, if you would. And uh, let's read together. Starts this way, we'll just read through verse 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stop right there. I am really filled with an, uh, a real expectation and a joy of what we're going to learn together over the course of time that we're in these letters as uh, we look to the purpose that Paul has penned these letters to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, we get a very clear snapshot of the reason why Paul wrote these things. We'll see more about that today, but he wrote, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, he says, I write so that, mark this, you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and pillar and support of the truth. So as we read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and later Titus, we're supposed to come away with an understanding of how we're supposed to what? Conduct ourselves in the household of God. It's just very straightforward, isn't it? And so we're going to do, as I told you last time, we'll approach these letters in exegetical expository in a literal, grammatical, historical context, comparing Scripture with Scripture. We'll explain the Scripture, apply those Scriptures to our lives, and, and then, of course, we're looking, as we saw last time, for a correct response, which is obedience, and we're looking for an attitude of fervency and excitement, knowing that it is the Word of God and we can act on it, and that excitement, of course, overflows as people watch, because we can't expect people to be thrilled about a relationship with Jesus if we're not thrilled about a relationship with Jesus, Right? So, very important steps. Now, you can catch a lot of that up online if you missed any of that, but we introduced these letters last week, 1 Timothy along with 2 Timothy and Titus, belong to a group of Paul's writings known as the Pastoral Epistles, and they're named that way because they're addressed to two of Paul's dear sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus, who had, as you might imagine, pastoral duties, Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus, Titus of those who in, on the island of Crete, and along with Philemon. These are the only letters Paul addressed to individuals. We also saw that when the New Testament writers wrote, they used the contemporary format of the day for letters, and that's the format we see here. They would begin with the author and his identification, and then they would uh, have the recipient and his identification. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who is our hope, that's the author, that's his identification, and then the recipient and his identification, in this case, Timothy, my true child, into faith. And we're going to come back to that second part of Timothy's identification probably next week, but we looked at those things last time a little bit, and we looked at a little bit at Paul last time. We're going to look at more of Paul today, and, and a contemporary, typical contemporary letter uh, follows with a greeting, 
And we saw that that is grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a very simple format. So in a normal way, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. And that's what it is first, a letter from one man to another. And, and we pointed out that that really sets up the foundation on which we are to understand this book. And to understand the letter, we have to know what was happening in Paul's life. We need to know what's happening in Timothy's life and what was going on in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was then working. And what was it that caused this letter to be written in the way that it was written? So these are part of the foundations that we need to understand in order for us to understand the letter. And out of that, we're going to draw things which are applicable to our own understanding and from a historical, grammatical, literal context, comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's what we're going to do so that we can understand this clearly, and if we make the straight cut in Timothy and then it fits everywhere else, we know that we understood it correctly. And that keeps us then from misunderstanding and misapplying. I was reminded of an illustration I read a number of years ago. It concerned Amy Carter, the daughter of then Jimmy Carter, and you may imagine why I was thinking about the Carters not too long ago because we seem to have a repeat of that now. But Amy Carter brought an assignment home one Friday night uh, while her father was still president. The, letter, uh, the, the story goes on and says, stumped by a question on the Industrial Revolution, Amy sought help from her mother. Rosalind was also fogged by the question and then in turn asked an aide to seek clarification from the Labor Department. A rush was placed on the request since the assignment was due Monday. And thinking the question was a serious request from the president himself, the Labor Department official immediately cranked up the government computers and kept a full team of technicians and programmers working overtime all weekend at a reported cost of several hundred thousand dollars. The massive computer printout was finally delivered by truck to the White House on Sunday afternoon, and Amy showed up in class with the official answer the following day. But her history teacher was not impressed, and when Amy's paper was returned, it was marked with a big red C. There was no assumed authority given from the professor of the class to Amy Carter, the daughter of Jimmy Carter. And I say that because this is a problem Paul jumps, bumps into all the time. There is no assumed authority given to Paul, even though it seems that he has the authority and should have the authority to say what he needs to say. After Paul establishes identity, he has to establish his authority as an apostle. So he says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. Now this is something Paul did fairly regularly, and there were a lot of reasons why he did this. And we began to look at that last time, so we'll take a little bit of a review and then add to those reasons, and I think they'll be illustrative and helpful for us to understand why he had to do what he had to do. And last time we looked at the New Testament sense of the word apostle as it's used for one who is ambassador for Christ, carrying the gospel, uh, sent one with a message. And, and there were many apostles in that sense, and there were apostles of the churches, as we looked at last time, and there were apostles of Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, he says. So he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus, and he has a message for Timothy from God and from Christ Jesus, who is our hope. That's the idea. And it is both of their expressed wills that he be that apostle and that he give this message. So he's saying, I'm an apostle and there's authority in this position. Please listen to me. I have authority when I, and I speak with authority. And what I'm about to say to you comes from Jesus Christ by the will of God. 
And so he calls himself an apostle of Christ. He calls himself a sent one, an ambassador, an envoy, and a messenger of Jesus. So first we saw that that was to give authority to what he says. And secondly, we saw last time, it also identifies his relationship with the twelve. And as we've seen, the apostle, uh, apostles of Christ laid the foundation for the church, and they were known by the church as the authoritative voice of Christ. And Paul is in this number. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, uh, a passage we looked at uh, a number of months ago, he, he writes to the Corinthian church about the marks of an apostle of Christ and how Christ appeared to the original leaven. And then he says in verse 8, he says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, so he's speaking of himself, as last of the apostles, he appeared to me also, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So he says about himself, last of all, he appeared to Paul, just means no more after Paul. We've talked about that before, who could be considered apostles of Christ. And as we've seen, Paul saw him on the Damascus Road at his conversion. He saw him in blazing glory and was blinded by him. And, and then you remember then further than, that the Lord appeared to him and on a, a, a number of occasions he taught him. He appeared to him in Jerusalem and later telling him that he would go to Rome. So he identifies his relationship with the Twelve so that he, he is accepted in equality and, and for the sake of his teaching. And, and thirdly, he refers to himself as an apostle of Christ, a sent one, an ambassador an envoy, a messenger of Jesus, because of the false teachers who would try to discredit him. This is not new for us because we're coming off a study out of First and Second Corinthians. And particularly in Second Corinthians, starting in chapter 11 and working to the end, those are the, things, the types of things that he brings to the forefront. But he's continually being harassed by false teachers. We saw them, as we said in Corinth. Paul mentions them here, even in the first chapter, as we read the whole first chapter last time of First Timothy. They were everywhere, and they're still everywhere. Teachers would come in, they would say to the people whom Paul had taught in a church he had planted, he has no credibility, he has no authority, and, and that's what they're going to say to Timothy. You were discipled by Paul, oh man, we, we know how to take you now, we know how to take what you say. And so there's this negative approach from false teachers, and it's going to fall a little bit on Timothy. So Paul has to affirm his true identity. And that leads to our fourth reason, it appears that he uses this title and that is to express his relationship to the readers themselves. And I think this is really important, because the question is, you know, as you think about the book of First Timothy, the letters of First and Second Timothy, does Timothy need to recognize the authority of Paul? Is that why he's saying this, so that Timothy will recognize this? Obviously, he did not. If Timothy knew of Paul's authority. He'd been called into the ministry by Paul, mentored by Paul. No doubt Timothy is the one Paul's thinking about, and Timothy is thinking about Paul's later statement in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Obviously, Paul is thinking about Timothy as a prime example in Titus. Timothy and Titus, no doubt, were thinking that they probably are the first subjects in that issue, and that is one of the things that we take as ministers. We need to replace ourselves with those who will also take that faithful ministry, pour ourselves in, they hear it, and then they go and teach others also, and you find faithful men to do that. So that continues to this day. But obviously, Timothy recognizes Paul's authority. He recognizes uh, that he was brought up under Paul and mentored by Paul. So the authority and the trust are already there for Timothy. So why say Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to Timothy? 
No doubt then, if you think about this, if Timothy doesn't need it, then it's because Timothy is going to need to impose these things on the church. He was left there to fix things, and so Paul has placed the weight of his own apostleship behind Timothy. Timothy is there, in a sense, as a representative of Paul, and with all the trouble that's there, Timothy will have all the leverage then that he needs to get his message across. So the letter then comes to strengthen Timothy's hand in what is a difficult situation. And so this is how we can understand the letter. We know that when Paul and Timothy went to Ephesus, one of the first things that Paul had to do, and we'll look at this more closely when we get there, but he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, he says, as he's telling Timothy and the church under Timothy's leadership, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then he brings an illustration in and says, among these, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. So the understanding then is that things were so bad that when Paul came with Timothy, he had to remove two very key leaders in the church. It's very likely, and we'll see this later, that they were pastor teachers in the church. They may have been overseers in that church. But they were teaching incorrect things. And 2 Timothy tells us more about that. But Paul said that they had made shipwreck, in verse 19, of the faith. Not their faith, but of the faith. In other words, they've misled everybody about the true faith. And so the language indicates that they had to be put out of the church, which means that they had been confronted in the way Matthew 18 indicates, and they had refused to repent, as we've seen all of, all of that before. And so Paul comes, and he has to put these two guys out, and then he set Timothy in the leadership, and he leaves. So as I said last time, that's like quite the introduction, baptism by fire, into the ministry. He has to put two elders out of the church and says, Timothy, okay, take over. And then Paul's in the wind. So now he's writing back to Timothy because he knows there'll be great difficulty in setting in order what's going on in that church, obviously. Because of the influence of false teachers, of false doctrine, bad leaders. And so to strengthen Timothy's hand, he affirms that this comes authoritatively from one who was commissioned, not by the church, but by Christ Jesus himself. Paul, and Paul planted this church, and so this places Timothy in a very strong position, as strong as it can be, when you have to do spiritual warfare, which Timothy no doubt had to do coming in on the heels of two very influential and longtime elders being put out of the church. And so... Paul's commission by Jesus himself is important because it expresses his relationship to the readers. And that's an important place that Timothy has to be in. Now mark this. God didn't just, as Timothy understands this and as Paul expresses this, God didn't just call me as an apostle of Jesus, but he commanded me to communicate to you as well. Paul says, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Lord, who is our hope, to Timothy. God commanded that I have, a direct, I have a direct command from God to pass this information on to you. Jesus commanded it, and he is our only hope in these troubled times, as we just sang a minute ago. And it puts clear authority in Timothy's hands as the new elder there to set things right and put this great burden on the church to respond correctly, as we talked about last time. Because that's part of the burden of teaching the Scripture exegetically and to explain the scripture, then there's a great burden both on the one who delivers the message to live according to what he's preaching, and those who hear the message to respond correctly in what they're hearing. And so there's authority there, and so it's better, I think, as we understand the letters, to look then at Paul just briefly 
and then we'll move on to our time around the Lord's table. And we're going we're to do that here right now. And again, if you have been with us for a long time, you, you have been through several letters Paul has written, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. And so you have some information about Paul, and, and you may know all the stuff that I'm about to say, which is great. And it's just a great information then, an encouragement to you. But you may not have been around, and so some of this that we're going to look at is new to you, and, but it's going to be very important because it gives us a background to this letter. Now look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. And so it is Paul who was named Saul. This is the guy who is writing this letter. Saul was a Jew. His father was a Jew. He was born in a Greek-Roman environment outside the land of Israel in Tarsus, which is part of the Roman Empire. And when he's born, he is, at his birth, a citizen of Rome with the Greek name of Paul. Paul identified him with the Greek-Roman culture to which he was born. He had a Jewish name, too, because he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And, of course, as you think about the tribe of Benjamin, the most historically prominent person in the tribe of Benjamin was Saul, and he was given that name. And he's called Saul, by the way, until Acts chapter 13, verse 9, where his ministry to the Gentiles begins to emerge. And from that time on, he didn't go by the name of Saul again. In fact, the scripture just says it this way. Saul, who's also, who's, who also is named Paul, and then immediately adopts Paul, and that's what we see from that time on. He was Saul in Jewish contents, context until he became the apostle to the Gentiles, and from then on, he's known as Paul. Paul is very transparent about his background, and we can look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and he says about himself, we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. He's a completed Jew. As we prayed earlier, that's what we pray for, the Jewish nation, they'll be completed. True circumcision is not by just the flesh, it's the heart too. So he says, we are the true circumcision, true Jews, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's a big step for Paul because Paul was a Pharisee, as we'll see in just a minute. Although he says in verse 4, I myself might have confidence in, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So, as we think about Paul, very traditional upbringing, very strict, conformed to the law, he looked the part, he played the part, he was born to it, he embraced it proudly, he embraced it gladly, fully Jewish in every way. His commitment, his zealousness, as far as keeping the law, he became a Pharisee. So he was an avid, legalistic Pharisee, a legalist of legalists, absolutely blameless everywhere his life touched the law. That's legalism, right? It has to do with what your heart says, doesn't it? Paul wanted to make sure that everybody saw that he was a legalist. That's legalism. That's how legalism works. Everything about what you do and your evaluation of it is perfect, and what people think about you is important. That's legalism. Of course, true salvation has nothing to do with our own merit or our own thoughts about how great we are, but how great God is. And we conform in a humbleness to begin to take on the nature of Jesus and not worried about what people think. So Paul, very concerned about the part. Everywhere his life touches the law, absolutely blameless according to himself. And he's so concerned about obeying the law that he persecuted the church, which he saw was a threat to Jerusalem. And we have 
I mentioned the stoning of Stephen. If you look there, just flip over, hold your finger here to Acts chapter 7, verse 54. It's a great passage and one that I think is important to be familiar with as we learn a little bit about Paul and his history. So look at Acts 7, verse 54. And of course, Stephen is there and he's given his sermon and the Jews have listened to it and they are furious. And he's insulted them from their perspective. He's insulted everything that they've done. He's played them in, in a group of people they don't want to be a part of, those that crucified Christ, those who were ignorant and didn't understand what the Scripture said. And so when Stephen gets all done, um, they're furious. And it says in verse 54, when we pick it up, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of, the, of God. Verse 56, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice. That was like, that was the last straw. Stephen supposed that he could see the Lord himself and Jesus. And they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse for 58 and when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, I've told you about how stoning works. Uh, the, the victim was taken to the bottom of a hill of some kind and held there and then released, and those who had stones in their hand at the top of the hill would pelt him with them. So not a very pleasant way to die. Paul, of course, had this happen to him and lived, but most people don't. Because people pick up the biggest stones they can and it's everybody together throwing them so it's hard to avoid them and after one or two hits you, it's pretty much over. So they rushed him out of the city, they began stoning him and then a very gruesome way to die. But of course those who were Pharisees thought they were doing the will of the Lord. And when they driven him out of the city they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul, verse 59, and they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, verse 60, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So you saw that little name in there that you recognize. Of course, Jews were angry at the message that, had, that he'd preached, and, and they were expressing that to him in no uncertain terms. And so they began to stone him. And in the process, verse 58 says, they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now that's our introduction to Saul in the scriptures. He's there at the murder of Stephen and all the clothes are laid at his feet so nobody steals anything and he's there at the stoning and he's so zealous for the elimination of Christianity which he sees as a threat to existing Pharisaic Judaism and indeed it was that he is there as part of those who stoned Stephen. Now look at chapter 8 verse 1 and of course as you think about that how much grief that must have caused Paul later and we saw a little bit of that in Philippians chapter 3 he said, um, I have no confidence in the flesh and I persecuted the church. So a lot of grief in Paul's mind about the stoning of Stephen. But in Acts chapter one, 8, verse 1, he's not innocent here. Saul, verse 1 says, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So he's not just there watching the coats. He's like, yeah, this is what we should be doing. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So that was just the beginning, the tip of the iceberg, if you will, moving on towards the church that's established in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So, as we see, he's not just an innocent bystander, kind of drug along with those who were his mentors, and just kind of watching the coats and maybe being a little uneasy about what was going on with Stephen. He was all part of that. So here he was, a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man committed to the Pharisaic interpretation of the law, a man so zealous of his Judaism that he was slaughtering people who were not following properly in the path he thought was the path of righteousness. And, and we see again in Acts chapter 9 uh, that he went to Damascus for that purpose, to slaughter and to bring people back to be punished and thrown in prison. So that's what he's doing. And Jesus stopped him, and we looked at all of that, and all of those efforts, and upended all of his zealousness, and blinded him, and saved him, and told him what kind of ministry he'd have, and then he was baptized by Ananias. And so, Galatians 1 tells us that from there he went into the wilderness of Arabia, and for three years, that was where he was, and he was trained by Jesus himself. And in Galatians chapter or 1, verse 11, it says, For I would have you know, as Paul talks about his history, he says that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Now, this is an important thing to remember. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I, mark it, received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. So I was at the top of the pile, if you will, of Pharisees, the most zealous, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him. 15 days. This is really, really important to note. When he goes to Jerusalem, the church is afraid of him because they remembered his reputation. He was introduced to the church by Barnabas, and he was accepted, and then became a pastor of a church in Antioch, along with other men listed in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. And he was one of those pastors in Antioch. And as you read further into the passage, he, along with Barnabas, another of the five pastors in Antioch, was separated from missions work. And in Acts 13, he then is sent to reach the world, the Gentile world, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and the story is just so remarkable. This is a man with a strong Jewish heritage, a strong Pharisaic background, a zealot of the law, who is now an apostle of Christ Jesus by the commandment of God, our Savior, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. It's a remarkable man who, in Galatians chapter 1, affirms he did not receive his revelations he did not receive his gospel. He did not receive his teaching from men. So that's an important thing to remember. As Paul says, I'm a, I am a, a messenger of Christ himself. I'm an apostle of Jesus. He was also taught by Jesus. Nobody taught it to him, not even the apostles. He was given to him directly by Jesus. And some believe that it was with Jesus for three years in the Arabian desert. Because for three years, the rest of the apostles had Jesus to themselves too. So that's an interesting correlation. Christ saved him. Christ called him into the ministry. And Christ gave him his revelation. 
And so this is the man who's writing the letter. He has the authority that he needs. He's placing this authority with Timothy to gird up Timothy's position. And we're going to look at Timothy next week and get an idea of the man that he has placed in charge of a very important church with some very difficult things going on.